It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Novelist Ayad Akhtar says his book, Homeland Elegies, is deeply personal. The main character is a playwright whose father is a Pakistani immigrant. These and other elements are reflections of his own life, says Akhtar. And just like he has, the protagonist grapples with identity and belonging. In some ways, being an outsider has given me a freedom to be able to withstand and bear some of the forced outsiderness. It's allowed me to make rational sense of why it's maybe not such a bad thing to feel like an outsider, because it gives me a perspective. Today, Akhtar talks about his book, which was one of the New York Times' 10 best books of the year in 2020. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Words, a program of the Aspen Institute. In Homeland Elegies, there are pieces of memoir and political essay, but the book is fiction and full of drama. Ayad Akhtar responds to issues of our time, like the rise of Donald Trump and the spread of xenophobia in America. Through his characters, he depicts a country where debt has ruined lives and immigrants live in fear. It captures American Muslim life and the feelings of dispossession that arose after 9-11. The father character in the story loves the U.S., is the embodiment of the American dream and a future Trump voter. His son, the narrator, is critical of America. The father-son story interrogates a culture that others its own residents and citizens. Akhtar, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer and playwright, speaks with Ron Charles, a book critic of the Washington Post. Here's their conversation, which was held January 13th, one week after the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Ron Charles. In the olden days, when we used to go to book readings, in the end, somebody would always stand up and... Uh, and they would say, they would ask the novelist, uh, how much of this story is really about you? And, and frankly, the, the novelist always seemed a bit irritated by this question as though uh, that the, the autobiographical accusation was in some way diminishing their, you know, their creative imagination. Right. But here we have a novel about a playwright who has the same name as you, whose father is a Pakistani immigrant and on and on. I won't go through all the parallels. So how coy are you being about this relationship? Do you freely acknowledge that there are some striking similarities between oh, your life and this book. Absolutely, there's no question. I mean, I think it's you know there's a there's a lot of levels to it. I mean, at least on 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 my end in terms of what I was working with, some of it is is influence. You know, whether it's autofiction going back to Marcel Proust or or you know maybe more pertinently Philip Roth, The Counter Life, Operation Shylock. But then there was also this 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 sense that what I was writing was coming out of me, was sort of pouring out of me with a, with a kind of relentless fury. The voice of it was, um, was my voice and that it felt somehow to give the narrator a name that was not my name felt like a lie, even as I was concocting and distorting and making stuff up as I was moving through the story. And so it felt, it organically kind of became this, hybrid thing where there was more and more freedom because I was allowing myself the freedom. And at the same time, I wasn't shying away from the fact that something about all of this is essentially me. So you did not want to write a memoir. You could have. I wouldn't, I, it's, that's, I, I'm, I'm encouraged to hear that you think I could write a memoir. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've, I'm not, you've had lots of success. You could write about all the theater and et cetera. True. I, it, I, as a dramatic writer, need a certain kind of juice in my scenes. I need a certain, a certain pitch. You know, I, I often joke, though I'm not joking, that you know, as a Punjabi 
um, we're like, you know, the Punjabis are like the, you know, the, the Southern Italian, the, 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 the Napolese, the, the Sicilians of, of Italy in terms of their operatic emotional inner life and, and externalizing all that. So as a Punjabi, I mean, it's just, I need big story movements to keep me engaged. And there's things that happen in this book that, you know, it frankly shocks me at times that, that people think that it's a straight memoir when some of the stuff, you know, I encounter a half-sister in a strip club who I don't know at the time is a half-sister, but end up at her apartment where as I'm walking to the bathroom, I see a picture of my father on her bookshelf. I mean, it's Baroque and I call it Pirandellian. And so, you know, I'm playing with a lot of different stuff and there's, a, there's, a, there's mischief afoot. And so how do you negotiate as you're working through a, a rather large manuscript? How do you negotiate that tension between memoir and fiction? I wanted to have an immediate connection and relationship with the reader that was the hallmark of memoir. So I had to ape memoir in order to be as close to the reader as I wanted to be because I felt it was so important to try to convene a collective experience and speak together and think together about what's happened to the country. I didn't want there to be distance. I didn't, that's why the sort of third person narrator or the third person character with a narrator, it was just, it would, it would be, there would have been too much distance. I wanted to close that gap as much as possible. The dialogue's great, which is not surprising. You're a great playwright. Uh, it is surprising how essayistic the novel is at times. And then we go into patches of dialogue that seem very real, very full of surprise, drama, the rhythms of real speech. Yeah. Uh, there's a great set piece, for instance, when uh, the character, the narrator's car breaks down and that trooper comes. All that dialogue feels very theatrical, very play-like in the best sense. Uh, how do you think through scenes like that? Are you thinking as a playwright? Are you thinking dramatically? Yeah, always. I, 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 I'm a dramatic writer in every, even in, as I'm aping memoir, I'm trying to find ways to move a character from one pole to its opposite. I'm, you know, I'm constantly observing the behavior, even though the character supposedly has, you know, so many of the facts of my life and, and, and reflects much of the cast of my inner life. I was watching his actions as they were unfolding. I wasn't, I wasn't expressing something so much as I was trying to find ways to stage what was happening inside. As a dramatic writer, I've got to externalize everything that's happening internally. Even as a, though as a fiction writer, I can address that or speak to it with a narrative voice, it still for me feels more intuitive and natural to try to transform that into action or dialogue. Every novel is a response to its time, of course, but this novel makes explicit reference to episodes of history that we all know, particularly the rise of Donald Trump, the spread of xenophobia in America, all that is rooted right to our era. Was there an event or a collection of events for you that inspired this book that made you say, yes, I must write this kind of a book now? Yeah, it, it, absolutely. It was, I, I, my mother passed away. Uh, my father was, as he, as the character who is my, my father in the book was drinking himself into a daily stupor. It, it was, it was hard. And, you know, in some ways I feel like the relationship with the father in the book was an attempt to have a relationship with my father as he had disappeared into the bottle. And oddly, as I finished the book, literally the afternoon that I finished the long chapter about my father, he uh, fell, hit his head and ended up in um, ICU and died shortly after. So it was, it was, a, I, I, <laughs> it was just very, very strange. But, but anyway, the decline, my father's decline, which, you know, 
had some elements of, of, of social commentary in it. I mean, the way that his experience, American experience had evolved, they had both been here a half century and the country that they had come to was so different than the country that they were now leaving. And the journey that we had all been through in that half century felt so emblematic to me of what was going on. And then of course, Donald Trump's advent uh, to the highest office in the land and the, the perplexity around how he had come to be elected. All of that kind of coalesced into a combination of an intellectual and emotional moment where I just, I don't know, it summoned an eloquence and an urgency that I didn't, I, I hadn't predicted. We have been trained in this country for a long time to believe that novels should be like Thanksgiving dinner. You know, you don't talk about politics and you don't talk about money. And, yeah. and your novel is a very rude Thanksgiving guest. Yes, it is. Uh, whether it's true or not, I don't think it ever was. I mean, there's always political concerns in novels, but there's this, there's this sense that you shouldn't be polemic. You know, tell me a story. Don't lecture me about what you think about Donald Trump. But as you right. worked on Homeland Elegies, how did you negotiate that tension between the dramatic demands of fiction and this and the persuasive impulse of the political essay? Well, it's, I mean, thank you. Because what, what is... you do, but had the novel been too heavy with political essay, it would have been a bore. Right. I think that what, I, what I'd say about that is two things. One, that I'm interested ultimately in the drama, even of the, of the thinking that the extent to which the thinking itself is it's constructed as a kind of dramatic experience with a reversal, with a, with, a, with a recognition, with a series of unexpected oppositions. And so that is the second thing that I'd say, which is that in a way I, more than the content, it's the basic form that I obey as a dramatist, which is that I'm moving energy from A to its opposite all the time and then back, back and forth. Because that movement, almost like an elect, elect, the movement of electrical current from a positive cathode to a negative cathode and then back, creates the energy and the movement that is dramatic life. And it's one of those things that I have studied and, and, and learned so much from Shakespeare. Shakespeare does it better than anybody else. He does it line after line after line in every play, in every sonnet. He's moving energy constantly back from, from an assertion to its negation back to a reassertion. And it's a constant movement. So in a way, one of the things in, with, with regards to polemic or rhetoric or persuasion in the book, it was important for those persuasions to then lead to their deconstruction. So to assert a meaning and then to deconstruct it or assert an opposite meaning equally forcefully in another character, in another argument, in a different part of the chapter. So that, that, that formal obedience, the obedience to the formal principle of opposition, I think helps get me out of the danger of overtly polemicizing. That is fascinating, and I wish I had written it all down. Uh, <laughs> for people that haven't read the novel yet or who look forward to it, I think they might be baffled. Explain that in terms of the, without giving things away, in terms of yeah. the action of the book. So, for example, the first chapter of the book has my father in the book as, as a proponent, as, as a supporter of Donald Trump, right? And, and the conflict arises because I'm outraged. I, the narrator, am outraged by that. And so I'm constantly building, I'm building to, I, I, I maintain that opposition. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to denature or water down 
the opposite. So I continue to build that opposition. And I will do that throughout the book so that, for example, at the end, the father who loves America and who uh, is the embodiment in many ways of the American dream ends up having an experience that causes him to leave America, which necessarily means that the narrator, who has been critical of America throughout the book, has to assert his belonging in America. It's almost like math, that everything moves, you know, and it's not, it's not that it's formulaic, it's that this mirrors something about the dramatic experience. The great dramatists, whether, whether it's Shakespeare, whether it's Dostoevsky, whether it's Tolstoy, they're always moving energy in this way if you look at the dynamics of how the stories are unfolding. Wow. Now, on a play, you've got that constraints of time. It has to be, you know, it can't be too long and it can't be too short. You, you know, and you know how the scene, about how long it should be. How do you keep track of that stuff when you're writing a novel, which could range from 200 to 700 pages? I, I definitely did not want it to be 700. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I knew that I was going to overstay my welcome if I, if I, if I went on that long. I, I think that I'm, I, I, I'm interested in big movements. I, as, as you know from reading the book, I want big things to happen. You know, a financier who's trying to become a billionaire uh, wreaks, wreaks havoc and, and gets his revenge against American municipalities who would not let mosques be built because of a story in his past by you know, bankrupting those municipalities by selling them. So this is a big movement, but it's told in a, in a, in a short space of time. There's, a, there's a, uh, an intensity, there's an intensification through, through limited, not, not going on forever and ever and ever. So I think I'm just attentive to the fact that once I get to my point or once the story point has been made, I've got to move on to the next thing. I have to keep moving energy from the negative to the positive, back to the negative to the positive. You mentioned money. Uh, you're interested in money. We're all interested in money, of course, but you acknowledge it. Uh, and you know a lot about it. I mean, mm -hmm. this novel really gets into the complexity of money. And your plays do too, of course, The Invisible Hand does, and The Junk particularly does. I learned a lot from that play about uh, markets and money. And in Human Elegies, uh, you dive into debt and monopolies in a way that I thought was really instructive. How did you learn all that stuff about monopolies and debt? You know, I think I, um, my dad made a deal with me when I was in my early 20s. He, you know, he was, as you know from the book, because the father in the book is largely modeled and patterned on sort of essential personality of my father. Um, but, you know, he, uh, he, was he was a little dubious about my prospects as a writer, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> right? Yeah, because you're supposed to be a doctor, right? I mean. Yeah, or, yeah. Some, or something. A you know? lawyer I mean, what, or something. What, yeah. is, what is this theater bullshit? What is this bullshit? But, you know, people pretending. Why you want to write people pretending? What is wrong with you? So, but, so he made a deal. He and my mom kind of cooked this thing up where he thought, he, knew, he saw that I would get interested in things if I was reading about them. Mm -hmm. And that, it, that if I had a reason to be reading about something, I would get into. He saw this happen all through, through my childhood. So I think they concocted this plan of like, you know, why don't you get him reading about the stock market and get him reading about economics. So he said, I'll pay your rent in New York. When I first got to New York, I'll pay your rent if you read the Wall Street Journal every day and you read Barron's on the weekend. Yes. So I did for two years. I, I would walk, I would go up to, to the library on Third Avenue and until I uh, had a subscription to the Wall Street Journal for the first year, I didn't. I would, I would read it every day at the, at the library. And then I, I, you know, and he would, he would never really inquire me like, they weren't hard inquiries, but they were soft inquiries. 
It was like just checking to see if I was actually doing it. And he was right. I started reading about reading about you know money and the economy and all that sort of stuff. And it's become an, it became an, a quick obsession. And it was something, of course, I didn't use that knowledge to make any money. I just, <laughs> just started writing. I started writing about it rather than, uh, than using it to make money. But yeah, so debt, you know, debt is, I think, the big, the big innovation of the 80s is, is debt financing. And, and what we are looking at now in the sort of extraordinary economy that we have and the extraordinary wealth and prosperity that, that has resulted from the deregulate, deregulatory processes in, in the 80s is really they center around uses of debt. Um, and that's what we're seeing now. I mean, we're seeing the, the, the Fed is printing money hand over fist, more money than has ever you know, existed and pumping right. it into the economy, which is why we have, uh, you know, we're not in a Great Depression. I think most people have not heard of Robert Bork since the Supreme Court nomination. Uh, they probably haven't. And that's, that's an unfortunate thing because Robert Bork's real legacy is in a shift in the American, American experience where the only metric that was really judged to be uh, an important, the important metric in terms of antitrust, whether you should break up a company or whether you should you know, do something in a market to prevent some company from having too much market share, that the only thing that mattered was the price to the consumer. And that if the price to the consumer was, was, was dropping, that it was fine to let, say, later a Walmart have 60% market share of groceries, even though it was going to kill all kinds of local businesses, even though a Walmart, when it goes up in a community, 86 cents of every dollar spent in that Walmart leaves that community. And in the process, you know, does damage to the local ecology, the business ecology. So it's a way to impoverish. I mean, we have these companies now, whether it's the tech companies or you have these retail companies, you have industry after industry where there are only two or three companies left because everything is owned by the same two or three companies where prices are dropping, prices are lower for consumers, but we have a, they have a stranglehold on the larger life of other stakeholders within a community. And that's why you're seeing all this money that has left the heartland, all this money that has gone to the coast, all this money that has left small communities and that's gone to these local urban centers. And it's part of the underlying tension and, and logic of this rural versus urban, Trump versus the rest of, of, of America dynamic that's at play. There's a real sense of, of, of anger and economic that you can't turn this economic tide back the other way. So the only, the only result is to destroy something. Right. Or change the structure of our economy and our laws that support it. Yes, well, that, you know, that, that, would be, that would be an adult way of going about it, but we don't <laughs> seem to be able to have adult conversations about these things. The yeah. second you start talking about multiple stakeholderships with regards to equity or stock, you, people start decrying you know, socialism as if they even understand what socialism is. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. It's really, it's remarkable. Well, what you just said, I mean, the few seconds you just outlined that changes in economy and then monopoly law, I mean, that's very technical stuff. You could be a spokesperson on, you know, some business show explaining that to me. How do you make that? How did you make that dramatic in a novel? Again, because of the recognition and the, re the reversal and the recognition, you know, that's this particular chapter we're talking about where Robert Bork comes up is really about the birth of a political consciousness and new awareness in the narrator 
about the deeper forces that are at work in America that have created this, this support for Trump across the country. And all of this is being uh, sort of, he's being guided through this process by a friend of his who he admires, a, a black lawyer from Hollywood, an agent um, and former lawyer, who, who has a better sense of the picture of how these things are interconnected. So in constructing that tale and that narrative, it was important to rely on detail, really, really choice, interesting details to make the page, the surface of the text come alive, but also to keep my finger on the pulse of the transformation of this narrator's relationship, not only to his friend, but also to his understanding of what's happening in America. That's the dramatic movement. It's, it's to track the awakening, if you will. The most difficult, the most moving, the most illuminating part of this novel, I think, is the narrator's reflection on what it means to be a Muslim American in a country growing increasingly hostile toward Muslims. Uh, yeah. It's so tragically explored in the character of the, of the father, who is so happy to be an American, who is so proud of his relationship with Donald Trump. I mean, it just tears <laughs> your heart out. It's just, it's just uh, can we talk about that special kind of anguish about what it means to love a country that hates you? Mm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think in the case of the father in the book, he's trying to fake it till he makes it. He's, he's faking being American until he really feels it. And, and, and I think comes to understand over time that there's some part of him that's never, that's never going to feel fully American. And, and that's okay. You know, of course, in his case, it means leaving the country for reasons that are dramatic and have to do with, you know, what unfolds in his life. But as for the narrator, you know, the character who has my name in many of the facts of my life and probably has some of my attitudes, um, maybe not all of them. <laughs> but um, I, think, I think that the, the, the writer is a professional observer and that in some ways being an outsider has given me a freedom to be able to withstand and bear some of the forced outsiderness, right? It's allowed me to, it's allowed me to make rational sense of why it's maybe not such a bad thing to feel like an outsider, because it gives me a perspective. And so I think at the end of the book, there is an acceptance that this, is, this question of belonging is not going to get resolved. It's not going to be resolved, but it's okay for that dissonance to, to exist, because that dissonance is what creates critical reflection. That's how we can understand our country better. Yes. And that makes perfect sense for a writer to feel that way, yeah. but for a citizen to be between being considered a potential terrorist and a potential heretic, that is not a good choice. No, it's not, it's not. And, and the book tries to, tries to dramatize and depict some of the hard choices that people end up having to make in their lives because they're caught between these places. I mean, it's, you know, I think I, it's not my place. It's, I never felt that it's my place as a writer to to do anything more than to show something. Uh, of course, it's, it is, it's, you know, the injustices that folks experience, whether they're, whether they're black and being black in America or whatever it may be, those are hard experiences that we, we want to denounce. But as a writer, it feels to me that it's more important that my job is really to show rather than to add that extra denunciation. You write at one point, constantly defining yourself in opposition to what others say about you is not self-knowledge, it's confusion. Yes. And 
this is a book about trying to work through that to reach some clarity in the midst of that confusion. Yeah, I think what I'm what I'm suggesting there, or what the narrator is suggesting there, is that many many of us uh, in the Muslim so-called Muslim world, for lack of a way, way, better way of putting it, um, have been very preoccupied by how the West has depicted us. Yes, what the West says about us, and it's important because those things that the West says become the justification to behave certain ways toward us. Right. It's, a, it's a trap. It's a trap. Right. Right. And so, but unfortunately, it's not enough to just say, I'm not what you think I am. If that's not enough, it's important to say that, but it's not enough to know who you are simply to say, you know what, what you're saying about me is not true. Mm -hmm. I do have to, I have to have an assertion of who I am. You know, uh, another way of putting it is to say, I think we're living at a time where deconstructive assertion is mistaken for creative act. It's not enough to just denounce something. It's not enough to just critique something. It's not enough just to say, I am not what you say I am. In order for me to really be able to participate, I have to have a positive assertion of what it is I believe, what it is I think, or who I believe I am. That's what, that's what that section is really getting at there. Right. This narrator does not consider himself particularly devout, but he does feel inspired or maybe compelled to critique the current expressions and practices of the faithful. And that's a very awkward position to be in. Uh, <laughs> he gives a series of what felt to me like, you know, pretty reasonable, maybe even innocuous things that should change about uh, the practice in America. And then he says, and yet the fact that I can barely say any of this without the fear of reprisal is a true measure of how far we Muslims still have to go. Right. It's very difficult to critique your faith when your faith is under siege. Yeah, exactly. That, and that's the dilemma of the narrator, who in critiquing in kind of oblique ways rises to some kind of success as a writer in America. Yeah, and often, is rewarded for it. Yes, is rewarded and often misinterpreted and misused as, as by, by uh, you know, Fox and Friends early in the book calls, <laughs> calls the narrator after he's written a play uh, when Donald Trump says, oh, I saw, I saw you know, Muslims celebrating in, in New Jersey on 9-11. And the narrator has a play in which it, there's a Muslim character who talks about feeling pride when it was discovered that Muslims were behind the, the, the attacks. Um, and, uh, and the narrator gets a call from Fox and Friends saying, you know, we want to have you on our show because your play <laughs> validates what Donald Trump is saying. <laughs> Did that happen to you? Uh, yeah, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it did. <laughs> how are you? So not everything's to, made up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how are you speaking to Muslim Americans in this novel and how are they hearing you? What sort of responses are you getting? Can you talk about some of those? Yeah, I think that, that it's been interesting that a lot of people who had written me off as someone that they just didn't want to take seriously when it came to Islam because I was saying things they didn't want to hear or I was saying things that they thought were I was trying to say them to curry favor with whites and non-Muslims. And there was one person who said, uh, oh yeah, he's, uh, he's after fame and fortune. That's why he's throwing us under the bus. As if, as if, as if writing plays was a path to fame and fortune. <laughs> His mind's like, what? what are you talking about? But, um, but I think a lot of, for whatever reason, there appears to be uh, a different response amongst so many of those people to this book. And I'm not, I, I'm not sure I can, 
fully understand why that is, but so many, uh, so many of, of my uh, fellow uh, community members are, are feeling very, very seen by the, by the book, oddly. So, yeah. If there's one thing Alessandra Orofino won't accept, it's the status quo. She believes democracies can't be healthy and thrive unless citizens roll up their sleeves and do the hard work of upholding democratic values. Orofino's story is featured in Solvers, a new podcast from the Skoll Foundation in partnership with Aspen Ideas. Her Brazil-based activist organization helps people participate in their community's politics. We really do believe that in order for democracies to be healthy and thrive, we need citizens to be the backbone of it. So we're not just relying on institutions to do the work of keeping democracies alive, but this is actually something that is happening from the bottom up. In Solvers, hear from Orofino and other social innovators who are making meaningful change in their communities and the world. Find Solvers wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's return to today's featured conversation. Here's book critic Ron Charles. This is a novel, a work of art, on one level about the existential threat that art faces in America, right? You write uh, a brief quotation here. Art, like everything else, was drowning in the tidal wave of ubiquitous and ascendant anger. Authenticity was measured now in decibels. Every utterance, every expressive gesture was read as a pledge of allegiance to some discernible creed. That's so accurate and so damning. Yeah. Uh, this is a tough place for all of us to live and particularly hard for artists. How should they respond? Which is one of those horrible questions. But I mean, how do you behave as an artist in a culture in which you're being told to take sides? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, I think it's the central question. And I, I, I'm increasingly grappling with inactive, actively grappling with without an answer, uh, grappling with an environment, uh, a recept, an environment of reception where people are reading work. It, it appears that people are relating to the politics of representation in a work, the way that they used to respond to the beauty of its language or to the poetics of its narrative craft. Um, and it seems to be that the political content, another way of putting this is that people seem to be increasingly reading fiction as if it were nonfiction, which is to say, does this writer have the experience that they're writing a novel about? Because if they don't have the authentic experience that they've written this novel about, meaning if they are not qualified to write it as if it were nonfiction, I shouldn't take it seriously as fiction. <laughs> Yeah, And it's a very interesting moment where this confusion between fiction and reality and art and content, branded entertainment increasingly, it seems that people are less and less aware how much advertising has become the dominant model of creating stories. All of it's confusing and all of it requires um, uh, a strong stomach if you're going to wade into it. Because if you're going to express yourself with some imaginative freedom, you better be prepared for the consequences. It's complicated. Yeah. It's complicated. And, and all of that, in addition, in addition to all of that, there is the diminished concentration of the reader themselves. 
and the oh, yeah. less and less support for literature as a practice. This has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, and <laughs> now uh, other people want to talk to you too. Uh, we've got, uh, <laughs> I'm being uh, fed questions here uh, that you all are entering. Is Fatima based on your own mother or is the character entirely fictional? And can you discuss how she represents the Muslim experience in America? Mm-hmm. So Fatima is, is uh, patterned on, on my mother. Um, there are a lot of things that are sort of, you know, it's, it's interesting to walk people through on a couple of occasions. My legal review, for example, at Little Brown, I had to walk uh, the, the lawyer through almost every little sequence about what really? was real and what wasn't really out. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And it was, and it was, I think, shocking to her how little of it was actually, that there was how little exposure we actually had because of how much of it I'd made up. Um, but that said, my mom is in the book, my mom is the template for the mother in the book. And, you know, I don't know how she represents the Muslim experience in America. I mean, I think what I have often joked about my mom's Islam is that it seemed to have more Oprah in it than the Prophet Muhammad. So, you know, I, uh, that was my experience, uh, you know, more Wayne Dyer than the Quran. Um, but, but, you know, she, she, she loved, she loved the stories of, of the prophet and she, she used to, uh, pray once a day. <clears throat> it was kind of a, a quiet moment in the evening that she would pray. And, you know, I think everybody expresses their faith in different ways. I don't think there's any, any one way of, uh, of going about it. There's a lot of different forms of faith in, in the book. So there is, I learned a lot about that, that too, uh, from Sarah in an interview, you mentioned you wanted the book to read like Instagram. Yeah. Can you speak more about that idea? Yeah. Our attention has been shallowed. Uh, I don't say this with any moral uh, overtones or I'm not, you know, not being punitive or chastising by saying it, but I do think that the, that the technology has done something to our attention. It's, it's rendered it shallower. It's made our uh, concentration, our, our ability to sustain concentration more difficult and I think the other thing that it's done is it's sort of turned up the heat on this vivid present through which these discrete pieces of non-connected information are constantly moving. <laughs> and what is ordering this, this attentiveness, this adhesive attentiveness in the present, what's ordering that are these platforms. So and when you're on Instagram, uh, it's totally coherent for you to go from uh, pictures of people in swimsuits to a recipe, to a quote from Proust, to, you know, to a landscape, it's just, it's totally coherent. And so I wanted the texture of the book to be able to move from vibrancy and impression, from thought to feeling, to anecdote with a similar kind of adhesive or let's say addictive thrill. And so when, one of the things that I was doing, you know, I was borrowing from the staging of the self the foodie culture, there's all these descriptions of food that I'm working with. And, and I'm also making sure that the, from page to page, often multiple times on a page, there's some sort of a, a, a small, sometimes small, sometimes big, hot feeling like a sensational thrill, a word, a, a, a turn of phrase that's going to be just like a little jolt, exactly like a headline that sort of captures you. And then you read the article and it's like, wait, that was not <laughs> that was not what the article said. How did that headline get me? Um, so I was, I, was, I was trying to find a way to use that technology or the thinking behind that technology to keep the reader engaged in this very developed language. So I wanted to use the addictive thrill 
of these techniques, even sometimes keywords, I would highlight keywords on the page and move them around in order to seduce, if you will, the reader into a deeper engagement with the ideas about what has happened to the country. That shocks me <laughs> because this is such a cerebral book. I would never in a million years have thought have said it had anything to do with Instagram at all. It seemed to me yeah. that you're developing enormous concepts and explaining things and doing these big story arcs. But now maybe I understand why I was so engaged. Is this tricky social media engineering of yours, uh, Tina? Who, who, by the way, you know who does this even better? I mean, not even not so much better than than me, but better than anybody is Shakespeare. When you get inside the language and you sort of Un unlock that sort of that 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 moment where it starts to make sense and you go into the flow his ability to keep you in this vivid hot present with language sound image reversal all of it the, the kind of confusion around which way and you read a sentence this way it, re it means something different than when you read it that way so you're like wait did that mean that no no it meant that he's, he's keeping you constantly attentive cognitively in a way that feels very similar to some of these platforms, oddly. I mean, I know it's a bizarre thought, but, but, but that's been my experience. Uh, Tina says, uh, do you hold any hope for America, especially with the events of the last week? And will you write about that? You know, I think we're in a, we're in a tricky moment. And, I, and I, wonder, I wonder sometimes, you know, you look at some of the sort of more threatening um, populist movements that have, have happened, they didn't flower to their full, they, they didn't come into whatever they would come to for sometimes half a generation or a generation. And that we may be at the beginning of something. And I worry sometimes that by thinking that Trump is the problem, yes. that we're not really paying attention to the underlying conditions that created Trump and that are going to be here when he's gone. And that the sort of profound economic shocks of the financial crisis and now what has happened and our inability to understand that supporting individual enrichment should not be our primary American value. That if we don't tend to those things that we're going to end up doing much more harm to the Republic for lack of a better way of putting it. Which is why I wrote the book. To raise alarm. To raise, to raise, yes, to, and to, to depict, a, to, to show a picture of what was happening to the country. From Gail, I was drawn to the narrator's process in analyzing events in his life to create meaning and understanding. It felt so real, so honest and vulnerable. How much of this reflects your own process? I think that the inner process that I'm engaged with, of the inner process of questioning, the inner process of processing, the inner process of creating, I tried to reflect that as accurately as I could, that the inner through line of the experiences of, of success or of some of the external things that happen are not things that actually happen, but there are ways to um, dramatize that inner, that inner through line. So I think, I think the book is an inaccurate reflection, if somewhat, if somewhat sharper at times than I, than I am. Let's talk about sex then. <laughs> There's... <laughs> There are some, uh, some explicit scenes in this book that must have felt, I don't know, a little awkward since you're identifying so closely with this character. Again, dramatic depiction. 
you know, it's interesting with Riaz, for example, there's that one very explicit scene in, in, the, in the theater, uh, in the rehearsal room, where, uh, but, but the structure of how that unfolds is that we have this character, Riaz, who's very rich and he will become an important character later. He's introduced and he's introduced as a kind of almost magical creature. I, I, the narrator describes him as a kind of gnome-like with a mysterious magical presence who in the next scene is responsible for a potion, this rare bourbon from, you know, 23 year old rare bourbon that costs $15,000, which when the narrator drinks leads to a magical experience of the senses. So the unfolding of that is almost building a kind of mythical structure so that when Riaz returns, the, the audience is enchanted, is, is prepared to be enchanted in a way that they don't expect from a straightforward memoir or realistic narrative. And so indulging that scene, that, the sensuality of that scene or the rough, the rough violent emotion, emotional violence of that scene was important to, to make it live as a consequence in this flow of action. And also to depict, it's the first instance where the book depicts the kind of fractured desire and the, the racialized, the politicized nature of his sexual desire, which is going to recur throughout the rest of the book and becomes an important part of a late, later chapter. So everything is operating to perform something else or to do something else because that's dramatic writing. Everything has got to serve two or three purposes at the same time. Uh, Christina, I want you to speak about how you decided on the title of the book. I always knew home was going to be in the title and homeland, homeland security. I toyed at one point with homeland insecurity and then back home, the mother's home, the father's home. What is the idea of homeland? And then one day it just came to me. I, but I, it, it was a long time. I had probably 25 different, different titles, uh, you know, 17 of which had the word home in some form. Lynn wants to know, a question about appropriation, which you touched on. Do you think writers who aren't Muslim can or should write Muslim characters? Yeah, I believe, I believe fiction at its best is this extraordinary exercise of human imagination. And I just don't see any upside to telling people that they should not be able to exercise the imagination. I think that we live in a time where you better be prepared for the consequences if you don't do it well. Um, and that to do it thoughtlessly and to do it without consideration for the granular specificity of the experience that you're writing about, that's probably a mistake. But I'm not going to say you shouldn't do it. The rise of sensitivity readers, how do you feel about that? Well, I wouldn't have a career if there, if there, if there were sensitivity readers vetting my early work, <laughs> Ron. I, I would have been kicked out of my publishing, my publishing house <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> Uh, someone anonymous asks, uh, do you worry about potential confusion on the part of readers in experiencing the book as fiction and nonfiction at the same time? Is that a concern of yours? It, it is not. I mean, I think the book at times, you know, uh, it, it, takes, it, it takes it to the father character. And I, and I recognized in doing that, that I was going to have to let the book take it to the narrator too. And, and it just seemed to me that, 
sooner or later, the truth will come out. People will figure out what's real and what's not real. And until that time, it didn't matter because what was more important was to pen this portrait of the nation. And in order to do that, I needed to use the raw material of my life. And in order to do that convincingly, I needed to use this strategy. Right. There is a particular question someone asked, though. Was your father once Donald Trump's physician? I've avoided answering that question. <laughs> I may at some point answer the question, but... Okay, we'll take that as a yes. <laughs> I'm going to avoid answering the question. <laughs> okay. uh, someone else asked anonymously, the idea of belonging is a major theme of the book. What do you think creates a sense of belonging or a lack of belonging for Ayad in the novel? And zooming out, what, sorry, what do you think it will take for immigrants to feel this sense of belonging in America more? Mm. Wow. One of the great paradoxes of, of our country is that we are an idea. And usually belonging is something that is a more intuitively, maybe even say physically felt phenomenon, that we feel at home in a community because we grew up there, we recognize the, the slope of the hill, we had such and such experience by that tree, you know, we love the buttermilk that's made from the cows and that the, that the sense of, of, of belonging comes from a series of experiences that is about locality. It's about the specificity of place mm -hmm. and the experience of place. And it's not necessarily about the idea and the sort of to graduate from that locality, the specificity of the local to the abstraction of the idea of the American experience, that's a challenge. And I think it's a challenge which we shouldn't pretend doesn't exist. It does exist. And some of the blood and soil arguments around belonging need to be taken a little bit more seriously. And if we don't, then I think it's gonna be harder for us to create the kind of belonging that can sustain us as we work toward this idea, as we continue to work toward this idea. Someone would like you to point to any other works that positively reconstruct immigrant American identity rather than merely dissecting it in creative ways. I love Saul Bellow's work, you know, The Adventures of Augie March. Um, I'm an American Chicago born. So I, I'll say that, read okay. Saul Bellow. Okay. Uh, how does uh, novel writing compare with playwriting? And does the process of birthing a novel with editors and a publishing house feel collaborative in the way that producing a play might with actors and directors? I think the thing I always say about that is that the thing I love about writing plays is I get to do it with other people. Yes. And that's what I hate about, the, hate about it. <laughs> and, the thing, and the thing I love about writing fiction is that I get to do it by myself. And that's what I hate about that. <laughs> so... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they, they, they're, they're, they're very different forms. A novel gives you so much freedom. It's, it's a rich, articulate interiority that you can inhabit with, with a reader. And you can be at one. You can be one with the reader. A play is so different. It's pure exteriority. The audience is completely separated from the world of the thing. They're observing it from the outside. They have to throw themselves in. You have to compel them to throw themselves into the characters to try to understand what's going on. Um, and there's a beauty to that, which is uh, so different than a, than a novel. So they're very, very different forms. I love them both. And I, 
find them both challenging, um, but, but uh, you know, it's, it's fun. It has been really hard to be without theater for nine months. Yeah. <laughs> Just crushing. And it's, and it's going to last, it's going to last another nine probably. Oh. Oh. Well, this though, this has been such an honor and such a pleasure to talk thank to you. you. I'm so grateful uh, for this opportunity and, and so impressed by your novel. And thank you for talking with us so candidly and uh, smartly tonight. Oh, thank you, Ron. Ayad Akhtar is a novelist and playwright. His work has been published and performed in more than two dozen languages. His novel, Homeland Elegies, was one of Barack Obama's favorite books of 2020. Ron Charles writes about books and publishing for The Washington Post. Their conversation was held in January as part of the Winter Words author series from Aspen Words, a program of the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's discussion is from Aspen Words, and this show is produced by Marcy Krivenin and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.